0: My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't yet had a chance to meet, really glad to have you. Really glad to be able to gather together like this and open God's word and look at Jesus. We have been for some months now going through the book of Hebrews. Uh, As Pastor Shane mentioned, we're we're just kind of going line by line, verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, taking a couple little breaks here and there, but really spending the better part of a year in this amazing book, this sermon by an anonymous author that was then written down and turned into this letter that we have before us. And today I'm really excited because after months of buildup, after months of anticipation, we have finally arrived at Melchizedek. Are you guys excited? Right? Melchizedek, the, the, the mysterious and enigmatic figure from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, that the author of Hebrews himself has been kind of teasing up now for several chapters. And so here we are, we're in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And let me just say one little thing by way of, of introduction before we get into this passage This is a technical passage. The author of of Hebrews is trying to make kind of a technical point. And so I really want to encourage you, you know, to to be thinking sharply, to be thinking deeply about the truths and the things that the author of Hebrews is saying. But then what's more than that is we really want to see why he is saying these things. This isn't just a good exercise in figure out the Bible puzzle. This is really uh, God's word given to us for our benefit, for our growth, for our shaping and so I wanna just encourage you to, to, to think with me, to follow along with me as we go through these verses and see what it is that the Holy Spirit would want to say to our hearts. And let me just say, my goal more than anything else today is that each and every single one of you would walk out of these doors more excited about Jesus than when you walked in. For those of you who are Christians, my prayer is that you would love Jesus more as a result of reading these verses. For any of you who are here today who are not Christians, my prayer is that Jesus would show himself to you and you'd be more intrigued by him, more interested in him uh, than you ever have been before in your life. And so with that said, let's read these verses and then I'll pray and we'll spend some time unpacking them together. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a 10th of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. God, first of all, we wanna come to you today thankful, grateful for your word, thankful that you have not left us to guess who you are, but you have revealed yourself to us. God, we thank you that your ultimate revelation, your ultimate communication was the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for what it is that you have done to save us by dying on the cross and rising again to give us salvation. And Jesus, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who inspired these scriptures to be written. And and God, we confess today, we need your help. We need to be able to think clearly. We need our, our minds to Uh, be awakened to these truths. But God, we simply don't want understanding. We really want more than that. God, we want to be transformed. We want to have an encounter with the risen Savior. God, I pray today that you would guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, I pray for all of my friends here today that you would give us all soft and teachable and receptive hearts that we might grow closer to Jesus in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen. When I was a kid, I did not really grow up in a sports family. Uh, My dad is not particularly athletic. He didn't really grow up watching sports. My grandfather uh, was a very devoted Chicago Cubs fan, and so he inflicted that on me at a young age, and I probably didn't like sports because I thought, well, this team we keep watching always loses. Why do I like this? I grew up in Alaska. We didn't have professional sports teams in Alaska. I I just wasn't uh, particularly interested in sports. But then... Next door to me, a, a kid moved into the neighborhood and he was really into sports. And so he, he kind of started telling me and teaching me about different uh, baseball stars, different football stars. You know, this was during the era of, you know, Joe Montana and, and, and you know, just some of the great players back in the 90s. These, these, these players were larger than life. We started trading baseball cards. I, I kind of got into sports. I finally crossed over the threshold, much to my dad's confusion. He's like, okay, if that's what you want to do. And there was one player that I remember from childhood, one player who really stood out uh, beyond all of the other players. This was a player who, when I heard his story and I heard what he was doing, it just absolutely blew my mind. The player's name was Bo Jackson. Any of you remember Bo Jackson? Bo Jackson was a remarkable player. He was a remarkable, uh, just physical talent He set records in college in track and field. He had school records uh, in multiple sports. And this was the part that blew my mind when I learned that he played not only Major League Baseball, but he also played in the NFL. And even as a not, not sports type of kid, I knew that there weren't many people who did that. And I also knew that there was nobody else who made it to the All Star team in two different leagues. He was pretty remarkable. He, he was uh, out of high school. He was drafted by the Yankees, but God had mercy on his soul and he went to college first and played for Auburn. That's a joke. If you like the Yankees, we'll talk afterward and cast that demon right out of you. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> he went to college. He won the Heisman Trophy. He, he played in both the NFL and the, and the Major League Baseball until he got injured and he played a few more seasons in Major League Baseball before eventually retiring. The thing that I didn't know, I was, I was doing some research on him this week the thing that I didn't know as a kid was how much controversy he generated between the two leagues. Both Major League Baseball and the NFL put a lot of pressure on him saying, you can't both play baseball and football. You need to choose one or the other, pick a lane and stay in it. It was controversial that he was trying to do these two different jobs. There was schedule conflicts. There was contract negotiations. It was a complex and controversial situation. Now, similar to that today, the author of Hebrews is gonna make a claim about Jesus. In fact, it's a claim that he has been making throughout the pages of, of, of the book of Hebrews. He's gonna make a claim about Jesus, that Jesus is both a king and a priest and not just any priest, a high priest. And you need to understand that to the original hearers of this letter, the original hearers of this sermon, That's a very controversial claim that Jesus could not serve in these two different roles. How could he be a king and how could he be a priest? We're gonna investigate that today, how it is that that Jesus is just utterly unique. As Bo Jackson was utterly unique to the world of sports in the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, infinitely more so, Jesus is unique in all of human history. But let me set the stage with a little bit of context first. I want you to understand that in the Old Testament, there were three primary offices of leadership, three primary roles that men and women would serve in. The first one is this, prophets. Prophets is the first type of leader you see in the Old Testament. Both men and women served in the office of prophet. And the prophet's responsibility is simply to communicate God's truth to God's people. Who will speak for God? Who will tell us what is true? Who will help us know what is right from wrong? Who will correct us when we are walking or thinking or living in error? That job fell to the prophets. They were responsible to speak God's word. It was a weighty responsibility, by the way. If someone was found to be a false prophet, if someone was speaking things that were not true about God, do you know what the penalty was? Death. Death penalty for taking God's name in vain, death penalty for speaking falsely about God. The second office of leadership we see is that of the king. A king is a political leader. They're entrusted with civic responsibilities. Their job is to lead and protect and provide for God's people. We see that there was the first king put in place over the nation of Israel, a man by the name of Saul. Saul was a king from the tribe of Benjamin, And he had an okay start, but things did not end up going very well for him. He was fearful, he was selfish, he did not trust God, he did not listen to Samuel the prophet and eventually God removed him from being a king and instead he said, I will put David in as king, David who is a man after my own heart, David who will lead the people the way I would want them to be led and he promised to David, he said, David, your descendants will always sit on the throne of the house of Israel. You will always have someone who is descended from you, ruling and leading over God's people. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, there are a great number of kings who rule over God's people. Some of them do okay. Some of them do not so okay. And quite frankly, many of them are a colossal failure. Just an absolute train wreck. Not not a good track record. And the third office of leadership that you see in the Old Testament is that of the priest. The priests were responsible for caring for and loving and and ministering to and offering sacrifices for the people of God. They were in charge of the spiritual life of the nation of Israel. If the kings were in charge of the civic life, then the priests were in charge of the spiritual life. If you committed a sin and you needed to pray a prayer of repentance and have someone offer a sacrifice so that you could be forgiven, you went to a priest. The priests had a very important role. And of those three offices of leadership, the priest is the one that has the most stringent restrictions and requirements. In order to serve as a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. In fact, more than that, you had to be from the family group of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes, but the family group of Aaron. In fact, there is a whole book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, that prescribes how the Levites are to serve as priests, how they are to be, uh, what requirements they're to meet to serve as priests. Once they've met those requirements, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to lead in worship it is a very intense role to serve as a priest. Now, backing up throughout the book of Hebrews, as we've been reading through, we keep seeing the author of Hebrews referring to Jesus in all three offices of leadership. Let me just fly through a few references really quickly so that you can see what I'm talking about. He speaks about Jesus as being a prophet. Chapter one, verses one and two, he says, long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our father's through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He says that the prophets were good, but Jesus is even better communication from God. Chapter two, verse three, it says that this message of salvation was declared by the Lord, was declared by Jesus. Chapter three, verses five and six, it says that Moses was faithful over God's house to testify, to speak about things that were to come later on, but Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was a prophet, he's saying, but Jesus is a better prophet. And in chapter four, verse two, it talks about good news coming to us through Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the ultimate communication from God. You want to know what God is thinking. You want to know what God is saying. You don't want to know what God is like. You look at Jesus. Now, the first hearers of this letter, that wouldn't have been very controversial to them. Anybody could be a prophet. They had to be called by God, obviously. They have to be anointed by God. They have to speak truth about God. But, but lots and lots of different people throughout the Old Testament and into the time of the New Testament served as prophets. That's not controversial. The first hearers wouldn't have batted too many eyelashes at this claim. The author of Hebrews also refers to Jesus as a king. Again, quick survey. Chapter 2 I'm sorry, chapter one, verse two. It talks about the son was appointed the heir of all things. He gets an inheritance. That's royal language. Verse three, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter one, verse eight, of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That scepter is a, a royal term. Chapter two, verse eight, says that everything was put in subjection to Jesus. That means he's ruling. That means he's reigning. That means he's leading and overseeing. Chapter 2, verse 9 says that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Kings wear crowns. And in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, it says that Jesus defeated the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, so that he might set free his people who were under lifelong slavery and in fear of death. Kings are the ones who win battles against enemies. So Jesus is the ultimate king. Now again, this would not be particularly controversial. The first hearers who are listening to this sermon, the first people who are reading this letter as it's being passed around, would have not thought that claim to be too strange. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. That word Messiah or Christ means anointed one, it means king. When you hear the word Messiah or you hear the word Christ, it's very reasonable to just translate it in your mind as the king. Jesus is the king. In fact, when he was crucified, nailed to a tree, what was the sign that they put up over his head? King of the Jews. So this is what he's been claiming. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the king that God has promised. No controversy. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to claim that Jesus is also a priest. And again, not just any priest, the high priest, the chief priest, the arch priest over all others. Chapter two, verse 17, he's a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Chapter three, verse one, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. 4.14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Chapter five, verse five, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God. You see these references to high priests. Now, I think the author of Hebrews is doing something on purpose. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, 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 he's peppering these references to Jesus as our high priest. And I think he knows, I think he knows that some questions are starting to pop up in the minds of his listeners. So in chapter five, verses six, and then 510, that's a typo on the screen. And then 620, he starts being even a little bit more direct. I'll put these ones up on the screen so you can see them. Chapter five, verse six, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter six, verse 20, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, what's going on here? Why is he starting to get so specific? Why is he bringing Melchizedek up, peppering these references in throughout the last few chapters that we've been looking at leading up to today? He's answering what would be a legal controversy. There's a legal controversy taking place here. And the controversy is this. Remember what I said? Only people who are from the tribe of Levi and only people who are descended from the family group of Aaron are allowed to serve as priests. If you remember a few months back, we looked at Exodus chapter 28, when God instructed Moses, bring Aaron and all your sons, and they are the ones who will serve me as priests. Only they are allowed to serve me as priests. This is the law. This is a binding rule, a binding requirement. Jesus is not descended from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is not from the family line of Aaron. Now to you and to me, this may be hard to understand why it would be so controversial, but let me give you just a little reminder of a controversy that is going on right now in our presidential election there is a candidate for the Republican Party named Ted Cruz. Have you heard of him? I feel like I can't even go on social media. I can't go in public. I can't be awake without hearing about some presidential candidate doing something. It's, what is it? It's February. I'm already sick of the election cycle. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? Okay, thank you. Good. God, we pray for our leaders. You instructed us to do so and forgive my hard and resentful heart. All right. Ted Cruz was born in Canada. <gasps> I know, right? The shock. <laughs> I'm from Alaska originally. I'm, I've, my whole entire life, I've spent being mistaken for a Canadian. So I, I have a complicated relationship with Canadians. Ted Cruz's uh, mother, from what I understand, was working in the oil fields in Canada as an American citizen. She gave birth in there in Canada, but he is uh, an American citizen. He can prove legally that he actually has the, the right to serve in the office of the president of the United States. Now, this is without no small amount of controversy. Talk radio, blogs, newspaper articles, magazine articles. Oh my goodness, can you believe? And then they all start bringing up, you guys remember eight years ago, Was Barack Obama born in the United States? Was he born in, I think it was Kenya or was he born in Hawaii? (gasps) If he was born overseas, he can't be president. Big drama, big controversy. Lots of clicks on your website, lots of copies of your magazine sold, right? We still get into that type of controversy as Americans. Don't pretend like you're above it. But that type of drama, that type of controversy is the same type of thing that's going on here. If, if Ted Cruz or Barack Obama or some other politician is not legally allowed to serve in the office of the President of the United States, then they shouldn't serve in the office of the President of the United States. But there's something even bigger going on here because you have to understand how important the life of a priest was to the people. If, if we have an illegitimate president, that's one thing, that's concerning, right? But you have to put yourself in the mindset of the Jewish people. Listen, if, if you have someone serving in the office of priest who is not legally allowed to serve in the office of priest, then you have no way of knowing that your sacrifices are accepted by God and that your sins are forgiven. You can't claim to be in right standing with God if the people, the men, who who have been charged with representing you before God are illegitimate priests. This is a big deal. Can you imagine living with that type of fear? Can you imagine living with that type of anxiety? Can you imagine living with that type of pressure? I just want to make sure that the priests are legitimate. A lot of weight was put on the priesthood. Now, Let's get back into our passage here and see where the author of Hebrews is going to take this. Chapter seven, verse one. For this Melchizedek, this Melchizedek I've been talking about, I've been teasing up. He's the king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither, oh, let me stop right there. Actually, let me just pause right there. This is, this is the full story of Melchizedek. If you were here last week, you remember that we, we went back into Genesis 14 and we spent our entire time together last week looking at Genesis 14 this story about Abraham. And let me just do a, a really brief recap for those of you who weren't here or those of you who had a, had a hard week. Um, let me just remind you what we learned last week. First of all, we remember that Abram went and he fought a battle against a very powerful king and he won against all odds. He won. God gave him the victory. Abraham is coming back from this victory, heading back home and two kings come out to meet him. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem. The king of Sodom offers him money basically a bribe, dirty money, said, hey, thanks Abraham for, for helping me beat that king. I didn't like him anyways. Here's a bunch of money, let's make a deal. And the king of Salem comes out, Melchizedek, and says, Abraham, here's bread, here's wine. Let me pray a blessing over you. And Abraham was faced with a choice. Which, which king am I gonna align myself with? The, the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, or the king of Sodom? And by God's grace, he aligned himself with Melchizedek. And we learned seven things about Melchizedek. Let me just briefly run over this list again so that we're all up to speed. Number one, we see that he's a mysterious figure. Melchizedek is a very mysterious figure. He, he just kind of shows up and he disappears. There's not a lot explained or, or told about him. He, he kind of comes in and, and just rattles everybody's cage and then kind of disappears. Number two, we saw that he's the king of Salem. That's the city that he rules over. The word Salem is translated as peace. The author of Hebrews thinks that's important. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But it's also an early reference to Jerusalem, the city where David would rule as king, the city where Jesus would be crucified and buried and risen again for our salvation. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness, it says. That's what his name means. The author of Hebrews says, when you translate his name, Melchizedek, that means king of righteousness. Number four, he's a priest of the most high God. That would have been the most controversial part of this story that he is a priest somehow, but he's not descended from the tribe of Levi. He's not descended from the family of Aaron. Number five, we learned that he was greater than Abram because Abram paid him a tithe and that Melchizedek prayed a blessing over Abram. That means he's in a place of superiority or leadership over Abraham. Number six, we saw that he's only mentioned in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. That's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he is only mentioned in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is the only one who who speaks about Melchizedek. And then number seven, we saw that he is a type of Jesus. That word type is a theological term, meaning a, a picture or a portrait or a signpost pointing us to Jesus. Those are the things we learned about Melchizedek. And again, the author is wanting to use Melchizedek not to land on Melchizedek, but to point us to Jesus, to get our attention on Jesus. Let's continue in verse three, says this. He, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, think about this claim. This is a serious claim. He is without father or mother or genealogy. When you read the Bible, you, read the, you get on your reading plan. How many of you ever get to one of those days where it seems like all your reading is so-and-so begat so-and-so, and then so-and-so begat so-and-so? That's the part in your reading plan where you all start to like, let me just skip over to Philippians here, right? Like here, this, the important people, the important figures in the Bible are always accompanied by a list of names, a genealogy. Here's the father, here's the son, here's the son, here's the grandson, here's the grandson, here's the great-grandson. And let me tell you something. Those genealogy lists are incredibly good news. Do you know why? Why? because it means that we do not serve a God who is divorced from actual human history, but God is intimately acquainted with and aware of our story, the story that he himself is shaping. This is not a book of myths. This is not a book of fairy tales. This is certainly not a book of rules and it is certainly not a book of philosophy. It is a book about how God entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, to save and redeem people for himself. And so when you read those genealogy lists, you can thank God. You you can fall on your knees and worship God. Thank you for the begat so-and-sos, God because it means that this book is trustworthy. It means that this book is reliable. It means that you are interested in what's going on in our lives. That wasn't in my notes, that's free of charge. (laughs) What the author of Hebrews is saying here though, is that Melchizedek, he's an important figure. He's obviously very important, but he has no genealogy. Nothing is, is spoken of him. Now I don't believe that the author of Hebrews is meaning literally he has no father or mother like that he just grew out of a test tube. But I believe he's speaking as, as, as he appears in the story. He says this, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. I don't believe he's literalistically speaking of Melchizedek being eternal. Only God is eternal. But the way he appears in the story, he, he has no genealogy, he has no beginning or end, says he continues a priest forever. And then the point is that he resembles the son of God. The way that Melchizedek shows up in the story is to make us think of something else, someone else, Jesus. This is what one commentator, Philip Hughes, says. I like, I like how he says this. This description, without father or mother or genealogy accordingly, should not be taken literalistically, to mean that Melchizedek had no parents or family, nor does the statement that he had neither beginning of days nor end of life intend us to understand him as an eternally existent being who experienced neither birth nor death. The point is that these assertions apply positively to Christ, not to Melchizedek. The significance of the biblical silence is that it marks Melchizedek out as a type who in these respects resembles the son of God, who alone exists everlastingly from eternity to eternity, surrounded by this silence. Melchizedek is the figure, but Christ is the reality. Here's the point. Don't lose the point. Here's the point. The author of Hebrews says, when you look at Melchizedek, he should serve to point you to Jesus. Melchizedek shows up in the Old Testament to show us what type of a priest Jesus would be. That's the point. That's what he is saying. Now, up to this point, the author of Hebrews has been answering objections, right? People are raising questions. How could Jesus be a priest? That's not legally allowed. And now he's gonna take a turn. I think he's answering yet another objection. Here's the objection. You ready for the objection? Okay, Mr. Hebrews guy, I understand what you're saying. Jesus is a priest. He's not a priest from the tribe of Levi, but he's a priest from, you know, the Melchizedek line. Okay, I get it. I'm with you. But isn't that kind of junior varsity? I mean, Melchizedek just shows up for one little verse and then he disappears. I mean, think about the Levites. Levites, that's the big leagues, the tribe of Levi. They have the law given to them. They have the tabernacle. They have the temple. You know, this is the NFL and Melchizedek's like the Canadian football league, right? Like the, if that's even still going, right? Sorry to pick on the Canadians today. This is, this, is, this is not great. Okay, Jesus is a high priest, but he can't be the high priest the way that God intended, the way that God really wanted the high priest to be. They're supposed to be from the tribe of Levi. To which the author of Hebrews very wisely and shrewdly says, not so fast. Melchizedek is actually greater than Levi. Let's read these verses together. Put on your thinking hats. These are, these are thick. These are dense. See how great this man was, Melchizedek, To whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So there's Abraham, and then there's Levi, and then there's the priests. We're kind of tracking a, a family tree here, or an org chart of some sort. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it testifies that he lives. Again, he's just saying Melchizedek just appears. He just lives. He's just a priest forever. Verse 9. One of the more awkward verses I've gotten to read as a pastor, one might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. If any of you are looking for like a coffee cup verse to put on, you know, like at your job, this is why I love going line by line, verse by verse through books of the Bibles, because it forces you to encounter verses like this that you wouldn't maybe naturally want to preach on. If you are the kind of person who thought, hey, I want to go to church today. I need to find a church. I wonder if there's any churches talking about the loins of Abraham. (laughs) You are in luck. Sound City Bible Church, welcome. What do we do with this? Let Let me try to just simplify this as much as I can. Here's what he's saying. We go to priests when we need help. The priests are descended from Levi. Levi is descended from Abraham and Abraham paid a tithe and received a blessing from Melchizedek. He's putting together an org chart. He's putting together a pecking order. He says, in fact, Levi, it could even be said, paid tithes to Abraham because he's descended, I'm sorry, to Melchizedek because he's descended from Abraham. You guys tracking with me? It's a complicated argument, but basically what he is saying is, no, at the top of this food chain is Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priesthood is actually greater than Levi's. So don't be worried thinking that Jesus is a a junior varsity priest. No, he's actually part of the most elite group of priests ever, the Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, we made it through those verses. And I think by God's grace, we, we understand what he's saying. And I will confess to you earlier this week as I was diving into these verses and just praying I'm looking at it, like this is some technical stuff. There's not a lot of instructions in these verses. It's just a, hey, here's some really deep information. Let me answer a legal controversy, one that you and I, uh, we don't really live in this type of controversy in particular. And so I want to just share with you what, what, what I believe that God put on my heart for what this means for us. What does this mean for us? How are we to to look at these verses? How are we to look at these complicated arguments and apply them to our lives? And, And as I was praying, I believe that the first place that the Holy Spirit led my heart is simply this. You and I need Jesus to be our ultimate prophet, king, and priest. You and I need Jesus to occupy the top number one place of leadership in our lives. Jesus as a prophet, Jesus speaks God's truth. You know, we live in a speaking culture. We live in a noisy culture. There are thousands upon thousands of people trying to tell you what is true, trying to tell you what is right, trying to tell you what you should do, trying to speak to you how to live your life. There are thousands upon thousands of people trying to tell us what God is like. My friends, it is not wrong to seek to gain wisdom or knowledge or understanding from a wide variety of sources. It is a good thing to read bloggers. It is a good thing to listen to podcasts. It is a good thing to to read books and articles. But if any person who speaks truth to you rises above the level of Jesus Christ in your hearts and in your minds, then you are settling for less than what God has for you. And in fact, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. Where do you go for truth? Where do you go for information? Where do you go for the meaning of life and ultimate reality? If, it, if anyone or anything rises above Jesus, then that's out of alignment. It's out of alignment. Jesus speaks to us through his word. Jesus speaks through his spirit, through his people. Jesus is constantly speaking. And let me just say, if you find yourself in a situation where you and Jesus have a disagreement, one of you is wrong, and it's not Jesus. (laughs) Sometimes Jesus says things that we don't like. Sometimes Jesus says certain things are sinful, but we want to participate in it. Sometimes Jesus says uh, things about us need to change, or sometimes Jesus says we need to grow in certain areas, and we bristle against those things. We don't like those things, but but Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the ultimate truth teller from God. And as Christians, our job is to learn how to submit in increasing measure to Jesus as our prophet. We need Jesus as our king. We need Jesus as our king. I wanna make, I wanna make three resolutions. I've been praying about these things uh, because it's political season. Number one, I am... I am Committed to studying and learning more about the American political system. I have to confess I've been rather ambivalent because I'm just like many of you probably frustrated by the whole thing. But there's a great deal of knowledge to be learned in God's Word about how politics and the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God interact. And I want to I want to learn about those things. The second thing I'm committing to is I'm committing to making fun of every single presidential candidate. Because A, they're all ridiculous, and B, we're so prone to idolatry. But C, and I mean this in sincerity, I'm committing to praying for whoever ends up leading and governing over our country. And I would encourage you to do so, even if they're not from your party or for your ticket. We're instructed by God's word to pray for all those in authority. But that said, there is no presidential candidate, there is no governor, there is no senator who can lead us out of the mess that we as humanity have created. We need a king and the only one who can fit that role, the only one who can bear that weight of responsibility is it's Jesus, it's Jesus. It is not a sin to you know, be a part of a political party. It's not a sin to have a favorite presidential candidate. But again, if any of these people, these, these mere mortals rise above the level of Jesus Christ in your heart and in your mind, Then it's not God's best for you. And number three, we need Jesus as priest. Oh, we need him as priest so badly. The priest. In the Old Testament, there's a cleansing effect. You go to the priest, they pray over you, they bless you, they offer a sacrifice and you can know that your sins are forgiven. We do many things to try to have our consciences cleansed. We do many things. We go to people, we go to escape, we go to uh, redefining what's right and wrong. But at the end of the day, the only one, the only one who can minister to our hearts, who can cleanse us at the deepest possible level is Jesus When you come in here on a Sunday morning feeling guilty about whatever it is that you did last night or the night before. How are you going to come to the communion table? How are you going to lift your hands and worship to God? How are you going to deal with that voice speaking into your heart saying, you know you have no right to be here. How are you gonna deal with that? Well, it was just a moment of weakness. I've done much worse. I know people who've done much worse. How are you gonna deal with it? How are you gonna deal with the weight of the shame and the guilt? How are you gonna deal with that? It's only Jesus. For those of you who are not Christians, our world has many ways for us to try to to deal with our guilty consciences, including things like just redefining what's right and wrong. But I'm inviting you today to know once and for all that your sins are forgiven. Forgiven. Wouldn't that be great? You know, the, the, the Old Testament priests, they were a gift from God. When we read the book of Hebrews, we shouldn't see these contrasts as a contrast between bad and good. We should see it as a contrast of good and better. It's a good thing that you could take an animal, go to a priest, have the animal slaughtered, and you could know that your sins were forgiven for one whole year. We shouldn't denigrate that. That's a good thing. That is a tremendous act of God's mercy. But do you know what is better? To go to a high priest who himself was the sacrifice, offered once and for all so that we can know that we are forgiven forever. That's way better. That is so much better. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our prophet. We need him above all else to take the place of leadership in our lives. For those of you who are not Christians, someone or something occupies that highest level of authority in your life. And for for most of us, I think we would probably all admit, it's usually just us, me. I sit on the throne of my life. I rule over my life. Today, Jesus is inviting you to get off of the throne of your own life and let him take the place that he alone can occupy For those of you who are Christians, how tempting is it to climb back up on the throne? How much do we need to fight and to battle day after day after day to continue to allow Jesus to rule and reign over our lives? Get off the throne. Bend the knee. I love this passage so much. So much of God's grace. I want, to close. I want to close with five points. <laughs> I heard it as I said it. Um, five brief reflections in closing, and I, and I do mean brief. Specifically on the words righteousness and peace. When it talks about Melchizedek being a king of righteousness and a king of peace, the Holy Spirit just stirred that in my heart um, big time yesterday. Yeah, I was working on the sermon on Saturday because um, God was just speaking to me through these verses. I wanted to just share five things with you real quickly. Number one, Jesus is a righteous king. And I want you to understand how weighty that is. I want you to understand that Jesus is righteous. Another word that the Bible uses is justified. Those words are are, are the, the same word in the Greek. Righteous, justified. Everything lines up. Everything is right. Nothing ever out of place. Nothing ever wrong. God is perfectly and entirely holy. And when Jesus came and lived on the earth... For his approximately 33 years, he never sinned. He lived a perfect, righteous life. Jesus is a righteous king. And I think for many of us, especially those who have grown up in the church, those of us who are familiar with the Bible, those words can lose some of their impact. Do you understand what it means that Jesus is a righteous king? Have you caught your breath and been taken aback at the thought that there is no sin and no darkness and no deceit in him at all? Like the prophet Isaiah, when he came into contact with the holy God, he fell down. He says, woe is me. I am undone. I am unraveling. I'm coming apart at the seams because I have an encounter with a righteous God. Does that weigh on you? Does the fear of the Lord, the right type of the fear of the Lord, come into your heart? Number two, Jesus is a king of peace. And this is so good especially in light of the first point. If Jesus is a righteous king, none of us measure up to his standard of righteousness, but Jesus is a king who came to bring peace through his death, through his resurrection. Romans 5 says, we have been justified. We've been made righteous by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know that you are at peace with God despite your sins and your flaws and your shortcomings, it's only through Jesus. And it's only through the cross of Jesus. Number three, righteousness and peace meet at the cross of Jesus. These two seemingly opposites, these two things held in tension, how is it that a holy and a righteous and a perfect God who cannot be in the presence of sin can have right relationship with sinners? My friends, it is through the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross, the cross, the cross. If if I get accused of having no other message than the cross of Jesus Christ, I'll take it. I want you to have three points to a happier marriage. I want you to have five points to better finances. Those are all well and good, but if it doesn't flow out of the cross of Jesus Christ, then I have done you a colossal disservice. The cross of Jesus Christ is the central point where we see God's righteousness and his grace brought together. There's a Psalm uh, in 85, Psalm 85, where it talks about this picture of love and faithfulness, meeting and righteousness and peace, kissing each other. God's righteousness over here, his absolute commitment to his own holiness and his absolute commitment to reconciling with sinful people, broken people like you and like me. Tim Challey's pastor and author from Canada, incidentally. um, I didn't intend this to be the Canadian sermon, but this is a quote that he says, um, I found just very helpful. It says, at the cross, we see just how much God values his holiness. We see that God will not violate his own holiness even in order to save the ones he loves. God will not violate his holiness. Christ served the complete sentence of just wrath that I deserved. This is the mercy of the cross, the sinless one serving the sentence of the sinner. Here at the cross, We see wrath and mercy meet. We see both of them in their glorious fullness, the ultimate display of God's wrath and the ultimate display of God's mercy. Friends, never take your eyes off the cross of Jesus. Never, ever, ever take your eyes off the fact that Jesus died, oh yeah, and then rose again and he's alive forevermore. Number four, peace can only come after Righteousness. Number four is, is coming out of the text where the author of Hebrews says, first, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, and then he's the king of peace. Again, I said it a minute ago, but many false forms of peace are offered in our culture. And I would love to tell you that you can find peace in all sorts of places, but it's not true. Only place you will find true peace is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only place that you will find true peace at the deepest part of who you are. Everything else has a shelf life. Everything else has a limited extent. Only the blood of Jesus, his gifted righteousness to us can give us peace at the deepest level of our soul. And number five, the last one is this. We are called to be people of righteousness and peace. If Jesus, our King, is a King of righteousness and peace, then what kind of people are we to be? You know, our righteousness is not inherent to ourselves. Our righteousness doesn't come from us. We are given God's righteousness. But do you know what what happens the longer you walk with Jesus? You start learning how to say no to sin. You start learning how to say yes to godliness. Things that were once temptation to you, things that were once attractive to you are no longer How many of you are thankful for the work of God's sanctification in your life, growing you? Anybody here thankful that he is helping you to have different appetites, different thoughts, different desires? We're called to grow in righteousness. Again, it all comes from Jesus. It's not our bare moral efforts, but that is God's call for us. And we're called to be people of peace. Does our world need some people of peace? How many lines are drawn unnecessarily between racial lines and socioeconomic lines and political lines lines that Jesus himself came to break down he says he came to tear down the dividing wall of hostility The only line that matters is are you in Christ or are you in Adam That's the only line We need to be people of peace Do you have enemies? Do you have enemies? Like, not hypothetically. I mean, like people like right now, as I say that, you're like, ugh, them. Those people, that guy. What does Christ call? Love them? Pray for them? Serve them? Be peacemakers? <coughs> Parable of the Good Samaritan? I could go on and on and on. The world needs people of peace. If Jesus came, if, if Jesus came, listen to this. If God could forgive our Sins against him, wash us clean, adopt us into the family, give us a share of the inheritance, the riches of heaven that he has given to Christ. Can we not learn how to love someone who's of a different racial background than us? Can we not learn how to love someone who's of a different socioeconomic status from us? Can we not learn to love someone who has some different political views on taxes or immigration? We're called to be people of righteousness and peace. Charles Spurgeon, I'll close with this quote: If any man shall say to you, Come and let us sin together, reply to him, I cannot enter into association with you, for I must first be pure and then peaceable, since I serve a Lord who is first King of righteousness, and after that King of peace. We must lift up the banner of truth, or we shall be meanest of all cowards. God has made us kings. And we must first be kings of righteousness and after that, kings of peace. How is God calling you to respond today? For some of you, you're recognizing a leader or someone that you put in place above Jesus. Repent, throw that idol down. Some of you are not Christians. Today, you're invited to pray a prayer, a simple prayer. God, I have been the acting Lord and ruler over my life, but I want you to be the Lord of my life. God's not not interested in a a big fancy prayer, but a simple cry for help, he will answer. The Bible says a, a broken heart and a humble spirit, he will never deny, he'll never turn you down. God, I need your help, I need your grace, I need your forgiveness. We're gonna go into a time of response now and we're gonna respond in a variety of ways. The first way we're gonna respond is to the giving of our tithes and our offerings. So if the financial stewards would please come forward and collect the offering, we'd appreciate that. Two things, if you're a guest or a visitor, please know you're not under any obligation to give. You're welcome to if you'd like, but this is uh, not something we wanna make you feel awkward about. Number two, the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. And so we wanna give as an act of worship, not as obligation or just mere duty. We wanna give as those who have been set free, as those who have been given the greatest riches of the kingdom of heaven. While they're collecting the offering, let me go over a few discussion questions, things we can talk about in our homes and our community groups this week. The first one is this, where in your life are you prone to lean on other leaders above Jesus? And what is Jesus asking you to do about it? This would be a good week to practice vulnerability in your community groups. Number two, where in your life... Do you need Jesus' priestly work, cleansing, forgiveness, righteousness, and peace, and share these needs with your group? And and let me just share something with you. During the the first service this morning, Holy Spirit just very clearly put on my heart, not only do do each of us need to work on being vulnerable and opening up about the areas of sin in our lives that that we have so much shame over, but I feel very strongly uh, impressed by the Holy Spirit to say that some of us, need to grow and mature in how we hear other people's confession of sin. That that is not the time to respond with wide eyes and a <gasps> gasp. That is not loving, that is not merciful. How I didn't even know that about you, that you were capable of that. No, this is a time to move in with the love of Christ, with a humble heart, and a humble spirit that says, You and I stand on equal footing before the cross of Jesus. We are both broken sinners. Your sin and my sin doesn't put us in like a junior and senior level category of sinner. We are all sinners saved by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus. So some of us need to learn how to hear sin and confession better. Amen? So that's for somebody here today. Number three, if Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, how does that help us? And how should we respond to these truths about Jesus' unique role? And then a couple things to pray about. Pray that Jesus would lead and guide us as individuals and as a church family. Jesus said, I will build my church. So let's pray that he would do that for us. And number two, pray for those who are not Christians, that they would come to know forgiveness and cleansing from Jesus, our high priest. We're also gonna respond with bread and wine, gathering around the Lord's table and receiving this meal, this this meal that Abram and Melchizedek participated in so many thousands of years ago, we're still participating. But for us as Christians, the bread is a representation of Jesus' broken body and the wine or the juice, depending on your conscience, is a representation of the blood of Jesus that was spilled out for us so that we could have cleansing. And so today, when you come to the table, I want you to come and thank Jesus that he's our ultimate king and he's our ultimate priest. And in him, we find our forgiveness and cleansing. And we're gonna respond with singing. Elizabeth, you ready to lead us in song? All right, Elizabeth is gonna lead us in song. I just asked her right now. And so we're gonna sing. Church, I wanna encourage you to lift your voices and praise this one who is our great king and our great priest. Let's all stand together and I'll pray and we'll begin our time of responding. Father God, we thank you for who you are and what you have done to secure our salvation. We thank you that you are our great king, the one who leads us, the one who triumphs over our enemies. We thank you that you're our great priest, the one who cleanses us at the deepest level. And God, for any of my friends, my brothers and sisters here today who need your cleansing work in their lives, I pray you'd meet them in this time. As we sing and as we celebrate the table, would you meet with us now, Lord Jesus? We pray all of this in your precious name. Amen. Church, let's come forward and respond when you're ready.